You are listening to Australia's premier podcast dedicated to the world of wine, The Vincast. I'm so thrilled to be able to finally announce that uh, I finally have a name for my wine that I made this year, uh, the, the brandy Intrepido, and uh, the Heath Get Sanchevese is called Blood of My Blood, uh, which was a, a very much a collaborative effort. Um, but the label has been designed by Brad Lucas, uh, a really beautiful label. I'm so thrilled with it. Uh, if you haven't seen it already on my social media, check them out on Instagram and Twitter at Intrepid Wino. Uh, Brad actually designed the logos for the Vincast and for Intrepid Wino. So if you um, have seen those, then you'd be familiar with his work. Um, but I also would highly recommend checking out Brad's business um, in Brunswick here in Melbourne. It is called Cult of the Vine, and it is absolutely uh, Melbourne's best uh, wine store and bar dedicated to natural wines. has an amazing range of products from Australia and overseas, uh, and I really, really highly recommend uh, going and, and introducing yourself to Brad. Let him know that you heard about his shop on the podcast and uh, and buy something from him because he has some beautiful stuff. But uh, thanks very much guys as always for your support and i hope you enjoy this week's episode on episode 111 of the vincast i chat with campbell mattinson founder of The Wine Front and author of The Wine Hunter. Hello there, Vincasters. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast Wine Podcast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And as always, it is a pleasure to have you joining me this week. Uh, I hope you've been following some of the videos that I've been sharing on the Intrepid Wino YouTube channel about some of my experiences at the Australian Alternative Varieties Wine Show this year. Uh, it really was a fantastic experience, and uh, and hopefully you'll um, get some insight into how important this wine show is particularly for the emerging grape varieties uh, being planted and worked with around Australia. Uh, and I hope you also uh, have enjoyed uh, some of the videos I've posted about my winemaking experience. As I mentioned in the intro, uh, it, it finally has a name. So um, please do follow me so you can find out when I do actually release it and uh, how you might want to buy it and, and taste it. Um, but thank you very much, as always, for your support. Uh, I've been sitting on this week's episode for about a month, actually. Um, Camel Mattinson my guest was uh, down in the Monica Peninsula. He popped in uh, on his way back uh, to country Victoria and uh, and we had a really good chat about his background. Uh, I have uh, followed him for quite a while. He is uh, one of Australia's authorities um, on wine and it was an honour to have him on. So uh, please, uh, I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Stick around to the end uh, so you can find out how to get in touch with both Campbell and myself. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Campbell, thank you very much for joining me here in uh, the, the Vincast <laughs> recording studio, which is basically my office at home, uh, and, and welcome. Uh, thank you for, for your time. Oh, thank you, James. Uh, you may or may not know, I, I tend to start every episode by asking my guests if they can remember if there was a, a certain incident um, that kind of made them think about one in a different way, or was it a gradual sort of osmosis 
uh, towards an interest in wine that ended up in a career in wine. Oi. <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> We've got plenty of it's time. It's a funny thing, you know, I, I always answer this question in the same way, but the, the, the answer I usually give is not the full story. So maybe we can just expand on that a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, I think if I can be categorised as a wine person, it's I'm at my best communicating about wine when I've got an emotional connection. It's not just that I thought that wine was good. Yeah. I, I feel something towards it. Yeah. You know? And I guess, you know, all of my best writing, like I always say whether it's about wine or anything else, if I'm not crying by the end of the page, I haven't written it very well. <laughs> like, I, you know, when, you, you it, want to release it, it, I don't fairly. necessarily... Um, the reader doesn't necessarily cry, but me, I, I get very emotional when I'm actually doing the writing. Yeah. Um, my my connection with wine is always going to come from an emotional place. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, we had a, like my grandparents had a country property that was kind of part of the Yarra Valley. It's kind of in the King Lake area. And that property was just super important to me. And my grandfather was really influential upon me. And he was, he was somebody in the 50s or 60s, moved to, to a country property to be self-sufficient and, you know, grew, grew all his own food. Had you mean sp- like, the, like the good lifestyle? Look, he wasn't a hippie <laughs> in any way. He no. was just an intellectual. It was like, I can teach myself to do this. I can grow large amounts of vegetables for myself. I can raise a small herd of cattle for meat. I can trap. That's, that's pretty, uh, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That, he did that. He trapped ambitious. rabbits. He, wow. Um, what, what was his profession before that? He was a shopkeeper. In oh, okay. Melbourne. He was a back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> before supermarkets, he was the corner store. Oh, the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> and what he couldn't um, make himself, he would trade for. A barter system. Yeah, basically. Oh, yeah. So, wow. you know, okay. he, he, so he would try, he grew um, potatoes and sold them for eggs and yeah. things yeah. like that. Yeah, okay. And so when I was about 13 or 14, he got too old for that or thought he got too old for that and sold the property. And that was, that has, like I have, I have spent the last 30 years traveling to that property and looking over the fence. Thinking, what, <laughs> like what I really been? miss that property, that connection to that land in a, in a way that is really kind of profound. And I, I really, I, I still smell that place. I, you know, feel that place. That place is just still really important, even though our family has had nothing to do with that property for over thirty years. Yeah, thirty-five years. Is it is it a property that would make good, uh, as the Italians call an azienda agricola? Why could you actually plant a vineyard there? Would it be a potentially good spot for, for wine? Do you think? <laughs> I've thought of that many times, <laughs> <laughs> and I think um, I think the climate would be fantastic. Whether or not it was a bit. It's kind of on the cold side of the mountain. That might be, well, maybe it'd be great now. Yeah, climate change, <laughs> a lot of the time, all that sort of thing. For those who believe in it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and so that's that's the long introduction to. There was a wine that I tasted in the mid nineteen nineties at a work event of all things. Mm. That I didn't I didn't know what it was. I was a wine drinker, but I wasn't a wine enthusiast. Um, I was a very casual wine drinker, and this this wine that was in its own way, so blind mm. because it was just poured at the table. Yeah. I just couldn't believe it. I, you know, it's like. Did I, you I, found I, out what it was? I did. I, I then sought out what it was 
And it was, funnily enough, it was a Yarra Valley wine. It was a Coldstream Hills wine. It was a wine called Bryaston, which was a Cab Merlot they used to make oh. and stopped making at the end of the 90s, but shortly after, by moment, they stopped making it. What was it, like a, a single vineyard, a single plot or something it, like Bryaston was a vineyard. Okay. Um, I think it might have even been one of the original vineyards. Um, and, you know, the rice of Pinot meant that, there were better uses of that, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. But in fact, that said, maybe I'm wrong, you know. I mean, they still do a reserve Merlot and a reserve Cabernet. So maybe those, where they come from, I'm not sure. I, I, I love Yarra Cabernet. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing, you know. I think until that moment, all of the, even though I was a wine drinker, all of the wines that I would drink would be sweet fruited. Yeah, okay. And here was a Yarra Valley wine that was Cabernet Merlot based. It was a bit herbal. Mm. And it was, it, in some ways, okay, it obviously didn't, but in some ways it kind of, in a way, perhaps evoked that that childhood. You know, it was from the same kind of area. Yeah. It was, it, it, it smelt of the country. It didn't just smell of sweetness. Right. Okay. So um, what were you doing professionally at that time? Like what, what was your sort of early career or your pre-wine career? <laughs> oh, well, I started as a journalist a cadet journalist when I was 18, mm-hmm. 18, 19. And I've pretty much worked in every kind of writing since. Wow. So I was working in a co- in corporate publications at the time. Okay. Well, uh, just fill me in. What What's a cadet journalist? Is that like... Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Showing my age. <laughs> more, more, is that more like a, a, a sort of a trade job or like where you learn on the job sort of thing? Or did you, did you, did you study journalism? No, I didn't. And that... Uh, cadet journal, cadet, cadetships still exist, but the normal pathway is you do a journalism degree. Sure. And then I'm not sure. Well, like a graduate th- position type of thing. There used to be, once upon a time, that was the way you became a journalist. You did a cadetship. Right. And then university qualifications came in. So there was always those two ways to do it. You could either go straight into as a first year cadet or do a university degree and come in as a fourth year cadet. Okay. And then I don't, I'm not exactly sure what happens now. But okay. anyway, I went in as a first year cadet. I think what happens now is the people <laughs> tend not to study journalism because it's a, a slightly dwindling industry. It's quite possible that you do a, a, a full degree and then still go, go in as a first year cadet. I'm, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. But anyway, I went in as a first year cadet. Okay. Uh, so, and you, you had lots of different experiences in journalism and writing? Yeah, that's right. I mean, in in journalism, I worked for suburban and country newspapers mostly. Yep. Um, and then I did, you know, I did what everyone does. I tried PR. I, I did technical writing. I did. I then went and did a university course where I was doing, you know, film writing, short story writing, all that sort of stuff. Wow. So, um, you know, there was there's there's a, a missing period of my career where. I was going to be the, the novelist and <laughs> <laughs> the great Australian. And, uh, yeah. Which, you know, in many ways looks wasted those years. And it's a lot of years to be honest, um, because there's not, there's not the novel, mm. but I'm an immeasurably better writer for having tried. What, uh, were, were there any particular parts of journalism that you found f- more fulfilling than others? Uh, well, again, it's the same as what I am with wine, you know, I, I needed to feel an emotional connection. And so, look, I did a lot of sports, um, which 
is all okay by me because I love sport, but it kind of seems like a funny thing to jump from from sport to wine. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think although with the obsession with point scoring of wines, maybe <laughs> there's a scoreboard. <laughs> no, there's, there, there, you know, wine can be very competitive with all the wine shows yeah. and gold medals, silver medals, bronze medals, that kind of thing. Trophies. I think to a certain extent, not in the same, not necessarily in the same way or in the same for the same kind of market of people, but wine is a very egalitarian thing. It's a very democratic thing in the same way that sport can be. And it's enjoyed by a lot of people. But I think for true connoisseurs of sport or wine, you can interpret meaning into something. You can you can find it like like you prefer to. You find an emotional connection. Something gives you a, a more visceral reaction uh, in the same way that I got extremely emotional watching my my Western Bulldogs <laughs> finally win a grand final well, you know, right. since 1954. Um, a lot of people might you know, open a really old bottle of Australian or European wine and have a similar kind of um, euphoric experience. I think that, you know, like there's something more to be read into sport than the simple act of two, you know, individuals or two teams playing against each other. Yeah, true. Absolutely. And I think I think that's where, where sport gets interesting is when you, when you have an emotional connection. But there's so many emotional stories. I mean, the Olympics is always seems like such a kind of sold out entity that we're all kind of bored of and then and then it happens and there's all these incredible emotional mm. stories that come out of it. Mm. I think both of them also there's an enormous amount of bullshit yeah, said about right. them. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You've just got to filter out the bullshit as much as possible. <laughs> True. Though you know funnily enough this was actually in the in the lost creative writing years. I won a sports writing award which everyone thinks not I always try to dispel the, the the myth, but everyone thinks that because I won a sports writing award and it was probably the you know the sports writing award in Australia at the time um, that I was this you know sports writer, which I did do a lot of suburban stuff, but ne- never the big time. Um, that sports writing award was for a piece of fiction. Right. It was a fictional sports story. Sure, and I can remember when I at, at the at the event where that was announced you know somebody saying you know you must be all over just because of the style of this piece you must be all over best american sports writing which is a you know an anthology that comes out every year and is brilliant and i'd never heard of it Mm -hmm. and then i became obsessed with it for 10 years (laughs) (laughs) okay and and that is just that that well i've gone off it a little bit in recent times but you know that is just an incredible example of what non-fiction writing can be right and it was that book that inspired me when i started when i had that moment with wine i then went why isn't anybody doing this with wine what there's landscape there's people there's struggle there's you know there's there's all these you know climactic events it's like this is just great fodder Mm. Why isn't anybody doing like best American sports writing on wine? Mm. In the same way that, you know, there are so many amazing personalities in sport, there are so many amazing personalities in wine in, in you know, all aspects of the business. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just like with sport, there's a lot of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. A lot of marketing PR type stuff. So um, when this was going on as far as the award and getting a bit more attention for, for sports writing, were you a fairly full-fledged wine lover at this stage? 
Uh, that was that was around about the same time. Mm-hmm. The third element of falling in love with wine is I was that moment was I was probably engaged to be married, and okay. I always think that's a very it's a nesting time, and I think that you know cellaring wine and and there's something about wine that's a that is a nesting activity. Mm-hmm. It's such a social activity, but it's such a couple activity. Sure, exactly. In many times, it's, that's, that's what it's when it's at its best. Absolutely, you know, sharing a wine with somebody, and also you know, as you say, touring. It's such a couple activity. I yeah. was just down in Mornington, this you know, and, and went to a few restaurants, and you know, it's just, it's just all the people rocking up are couples. Mm. I know that, like, you know, I, I was lucky enough to spend uh, a number of years working for Domaine Chandon, you know, and they had a lot of people coming through the cellar door. And most of the tables were for set up for two to four. So yeah. it was either couples or two couples, you know, out for the day, you know, having a lovely time, that kind of thing. You know, it, it is – there is a kind of lovely sort of romantic thing about – Well, there <laughs> is, you know. Wine yeah. visiting. Yeah. Um, were, you, were you doing much reading about wine at this point? Um, because you, you, yes you, and no. You talked about like you found you thought there was something missing as far as wine writing at the time that there wasn't enough about enough story, enough emotion, enough kind of evocative writing about wine. Yeah, look, I I, I absolutely thought that this was territory that was largely unexplored, or yeah. you know, the, the the landscape wasn't ploughed. But that said. It's probably a bit unfair. I mean, what what access? What you know? Did I know everything that was being written? No, no and there yeah. are some terrific writers out there. Absolutely. And but that said, you know, the natural progression for your average your average person who goes crazy over wine is to go straight to the guidebooks. Sure. And, and I used to look at them and go, I actually want to sit down with a book and spend the weekend with it. You can't do that with these. Yeah, um, exactly. And, I, and, and, and when I went through a few of the books where you could, I was like, well, we're, you know, I need more. Mm-hmm. There have been some books where, which, where I've thought, in concept, this is exactly what I'm after. And then when I've read it, I've gone, well, that just missed it by such a wide margin. Sure. And then there's been others where I've gone, yep, that's it. You know, and I always remember, I mean, I think that everyone still all these years later talks about Kermit Lynch's adventures on the wine route. It's which, which the irony is this is not somebody who's really a writer or, no. or set out to be a writer. He's no. kind of become one in some ways, but that book is so influential because it's so apart from the fact that he, it's just, well, it's so it's, it's just personal. Mm-hmm. And these, he doesn't start, say at the start, look, these are the producers that are the best producers in the world. These aren't the prestige producers. These are the producers that I respond to. Yeah. And, that's why people love that book. There sure. aren't many examples of that sort of book. Yeah, absolutely. That was sort of as far as uh, an example of that that, you know, was written years ago. Yeah. That Kermit Lynch was the first one that my mind went to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the one that the, – the book that I kind of read in that vein that I really responded to was the one that Ben Canada wrote called The Perfect Glass of Wine. Yes. And I, I got given that by my my mum, I think, for my birthday or Christmas when I first started getting into wine. And I liked that it was just his experience, you know, and I kind of liked finding meaning in, in his stories and, and, and that kind of thing. And, and that certainly helped me want to connect with wine in a different way and, and certainly communicate about, about wine in a different way. 
Yeah, look, and, and Ben is a genuinely talented, excellent writer. I, I, it's a pity we haven't seen more from him. But, yeah. And not only that, he's got a particular take on wine that is not, it's not a replica of anybody else's. No. There, it, it, there's a wit to oh, his writing. There's not too many people you can say that of, though, you know, that they've got, they've got their own peculiar take, and Ben was one of those. Yeah, I guess Ben for me is kind of was like, you know, the previous generation's example of that kind of writing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what? how did you first get started as far as writing about wine? Like when, when did you kind of dip the toe in the water, so to speak? Yeah, very quickly, probably too quickly. <laughs> right. And that was probably a good and a bad thing, ultimately a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> a good thing commercially, not necessarily a good thing for, for my, fortunate, my development. Thing. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, I, I, I look as a journalist, I was always going to be a freelancer. I, I always, I, I'm, I am a terrible journalist if I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. And if you're on staff, you're going to have to do a lot of stuff you're not interested in. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, you know, just actively poor. That's that sort of journalism, and so I was always going to go to journal uh, to freelance, and I was always get, the reason I was going to do that was so that I could follow my nose. What am I interested in? And so, as soon as I got interested in wine, it's like, well, I have to write about it, right? Really, not knowing the landscape at all, okay. and I can remember approaching certain wine magazine editors and saying, "Look, I'm not an expert, but I can write." Yeah. So you know, there's, there what's, must what's be. That, st- you know, I can do. I can do personality, uh, uh, you know, uh, features on profiles on winemakers and stuff like that. You know, if you want a vertical tasting, get someone else, get get, get one of the established people to do that. Yeah. I'll do the, the stuff that needs to be written. And, you know, the response was, Look, you're either a wine expert or you're not. Yeah. <laughs> so you were more journalist than wine expert in that you, you said, I, I want to find what to write about rather than here's what I think should be written about. Yeah, absolutely. Does that, does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I, I hated right from the start this idea of, of public relations-driven journalism, and which is, is rife in, in wine. Yeah. In terms of – and not, not necessarily – like there's the obvious ways, but even in other ways, you know, it's our – 50th birthday we're holding a vertical tasting come and write about it mm. that that was their idea it's their birthday and there may well be a good story but chances are there's the fact that it's their birthday is not a good story mm. you know i that that kind of led i'd rather drive out into a region and find the interesting stuff mm-hmm. so more of the gonzo journalism style of things which was what you know getting back to the best american short stories you know which which is comes out of that new journalism, um, you know, breakthrough that happened in the 60s in America. And I think, think Tom Wolfe actually said, you know, and, and I've always been inspired by it, that when he first started getting into gonzo journalism or new journalism, that um, he couldn't believe looking at, you know, we're talking the 60s. Yep. He couldn't believe looking at California in the 60s that there was all this material and, and it was being left alone. It's like 
So, like, you mean like journalistic material? Yeah, you okay. know, there's, there's stuff going in, on in society that is is just going to bring the page, is going to light the page up. Yeah, and and we're still, but but media is still just looking at the kind of you know its normal avenues. Yeah. there's all this stuff going out in the streets, and the audience is completely <laughs> unaware of this. You know, yeah, of, that's of, right, of this and, because no one's writing about it. And I actually think, you know, he probably was a little bit undisciplined in some ways with his <laughs> writing. But when you look at the stuff that he's recording, you just go, you know, this this just was unseen. Yeah. You know, and that, and that I was very much kind of inspired by that whole genre. Yeah. So, um, what was your what was your medium? Where where, where do you where were you writing for? What yeah. Well, I, you know, I was lucky enough that I got plenty of work from the now defunct magazine divine that andrew wood did and which was ahead of its time and and is that is that the one that max allen was in? max allen was a contributor to that yep okay um sally gudgeon was and yes. uh scott wasley was and um and that was great in that you could pretty much write whatever you like <laughs> <laughs> but uh i you know i i used to come across a lot of stories or get invited to events or whatever and I used to go, I could write a story on this, but there's nowhere for it to go. Sure. There's only so much space or, you know, it, or, you know, I know some other journalist is going there too, mm-hmm. you know. And so people always think that it was a really strategic move to start up my own. So so quite early, like, it, well, it's not that early, but it's quite early in terms of me writing about wine. I actually started up my own newsletter or website and – I started it not because I thought I was the one. Mm. I just because I needed an avenue where you I could just write that. the yeah. way I wanted to write about the things I wanted to write about. And this is before blogs sort of took. Yeah, yeah I've always had I had an uncomfortable relationship with the word blog because we were <laughs> pre-blogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you 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 started in like a newsletter. What? How did you? expect to uh, to have the audience find you was it like a field of dream style of things so if you write it they will come kind of thing it's <laughs> yes. like I've, people will find me yeah it was absolutely a field of dreams thing <laughs> <laughs> and i was again it wasn't strategic but from the start it never crossed my mind that i would just do it for free mm. it was more or less charged from day one. It wasn't quite. A, the, the, the first time I put out a newsletter, I said, I'm going to do three free newsletters so that people can can have a look. Yep. Pass it around as much as you like. There's no copyright on these. Right. <laughs> Not quite, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Just share this. I mean, we're talking kind of pre what how the web has gone. So these were PDF newsletters emailed. Yep, okay. Like a zine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I said, I'm doing three for free. And then um, it's subscription-based from there. And and you would like expecting like with word of mouth, people would, you know, forward, oh, check out this this thing to, the, to have enough of a, an interest that people would go, okay, now I'm going to subscribe yeah. pretty much yeah. and, and pay for it. Yeah. And in hindsight, I go, that was just so audacious. I can't believe I was asking people to pay for my writing on wine <laughs> back when I was, at, you know, quite near the start. Yeah. But... That said, you know, from 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 the first day, people subscribed. Wow. I think, you know, one of the things was if you were fortunate as far as timing because I would I can imagine there a lot of people were a little bit tired of very well-established, 
you know, magazines and periodicals that were possibly a little bit on the dry side and and there hadn't been, you know, as you say, that kind of birth of the blog and more of that social media um, avenue for people to to talk about wine. So people possibly were like, oh, this is something new. This is exciting. It's opinion-based rather than, you know, just fact-based or someone regurgitating a press release. Someone is actually telling stories. Let's sign up for that. Yeah. And, yeah, no, it, it, was, it was a really interesting experience. I mean, I got some support from... I'm sure that there were there were other wine writers who just thought, "Who is this noob?" <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm always indebted to. I think the first person who subscribed was Max Allen, right? And Max gave me work as well. Uh, he, he passed some work to me, and he he was editing something at the time. I can't remember what it was, and he he commissioned stuff, and so I did get some some support from people who you know I looked up to, mm. and that was really important because when I say people subscribe first the first day, those first five years, like you get over the flush of gee, somebody's paying me to to write this newsletter. You know, when you're three or four years in, and yes, you have built that number, but it's not an extravagant number, and and there was never any free. Because it was always behind a paywall, there was never that free traffic. Yeah. So I could never brag about numbers because it was never about numbers. It was only paid people. Yeah. And and what was kind of the, the big catalyst, you know, in in the same way that you got the, the award for sports writing, sports journalism, what was the kind of the big thing that happened that put you onto a much bigger stage as far as as far as a wine communicator? Um, geez, I'm on a big stage yet. <laughs> I, I would know. say so. I would say so. Uh, look, the, I mean, one thing I will say about Winefront was that was really good is because I used to email it out to people and then it went to being a website. But I used to, I used to email it to people. People would read it mm-hmm. and email back. Yes. Okay. So when you were getting that sort of feedback, that was was absolutely. A, a, a big... And so if if I went if I was a little bit you know too enthusiastic about a wine, people would go tone that down. <laughs> <laughs> or you know I, I can remember you know I I I had these newsletters which sometimes I don't know twenty twenty four pages like they were quite there was a lot of writing in it and it was all me just you okay and. Um, I'd, you know, I'd slaved away doing this and put my heart and soul into this newsletter, sent it out, and somebody, you know, a few hours later went, you know, that's just poor, that you know, and just outlined all the things that I'd done wow. wrong. And I, I think that I, I, his assessment was brutal. I did have it out with him. But at the same time, that yeah, criticism is just we all hate it. It's mm. just so invaluable. <laughs> I always carry that guy on my back. Mm. But that's the thing, like in the same way that as as a communicator doing what you do, you are entitled to your opinion, like you're speaking from the heart and you're being positive about things that you think are great. People are entitled to be, be the same towards your content, you know, in the same way that we might be critical of someone's wine, someone might be critical of our criticism. Yeah, which it's absolutely fair enough and, you know, I, I, at the time, you know, I'd put out, 
I'd put out an edition of Winefront and get all this immediate feedback. I'd then write an article for, you know, go on my travel wine or something, hear nothing. Hmm. And you never hear, it's, it's one of the great flaws. You never hear anything back from those publications. So you never get that. And I, I always look at writers who have only written for those sorts of publications yeah. and go, how do you know if you're striking a chord or not? Hmm. I was always super aware what people were interested in and, and you know, whether I was getting the tone right. Did you, did you keep, like, any data about the people that were subscribing? Did you have that I'm kind a, of information? I'm not a data kind of guy. No, okay. So, you, so you, couldn't, you, you weren't necessarily aware of the demographics or anything? Uh, no, though. I mean, I guess you have a sense with that. but And, and it wasn't like a, oh, a lot more people subscribe to this edition of it because I wrote about this kind of thing. So maybe if I focus more on that, I might. Uh, yeah, I would feel that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, I, it, it's it's the good and the bad news. I I think that commercially it was super, and it the success, and we can now call Winefront successful. <laughs> <laughs> after how many Only, years? Yeah, after fifteen years. <laughs> That's only in the last five years where that's, we, that's we like would a, start to say that. That's to like be a honest. proper wine business, then. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> um, you ain't no flash in the pan by any means. <laughs> but you know, that, the good news is I was really you know on top of what people wanted to hear about, sure. and so I followed that lead. Great. Okay. okay, that's the good news. The bad news is because I jumped in to writing about wine and and doing this newsletter so early in my journey, I feel like my journey has been driven by other people. And so I look at some people who have just freestyled mm. <laughs> and go, you know, would I have ended up there, you know, and they're really into X and I'm not. And I go, the funny thing is that looks like my sort of thing. It's just I haven't been allowed to go there. Okay. Because I always remember when I did that, that kind of film short story school course, Martin Flanagan, um, the A or you know the Fairfax well-known writer, mm. came and talked to us, and you know, and he looked at us and we're just a bunch of students, and he kind of pointed to each of us and said, "You know, I could write a terrific article on every one of you because everybody's got a good story." Mm. And it, it's like that, you know. I kind of go whether the wines are my sort of wines or not. I can find interesting stories. So if you tell me what you you want to know. I can do a good story on it. Okay. So you like sort of pinpointing the interesting, yeah, like finding a story, you know, in the same, you know, with a wine or what you find particularly interesting about it and then you can kind of zoom in on it and then pull back and and bring the audience, bring the, the reader along with you on that journey. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it works at its best when, obviously, when I love the wine. Yeah. I mean, it's all about, you know, the two sides are I, I love the personal journeys. Not all of the personal journeys are that interesting. Mm. But, you know, when the journey is interesting, that's when I'm really on. And when the wine in the glass is like a, I'm always about the wine in the glass at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah. And when you can bring the two together, then, then, then it's happening. It's pretty awesome. How did um, Winefront evolve into what it has become now? Like you're going from just yourself to you having other people who contribute, you know, from it being 
mailed out and being it, it was still just article based and and obviously now you know it, it's largely review based as well how did how did that evol- evolution take place yeah look i i think i'm a fairly practical person even though i'm a dreamer <laughs> and so from day one look i think the mix I think the promise at the start was something like, you know, I'll, I'll do X number of stories per month. Sure. Um, and there'll be some reviews. Yep. And from day one, those reviews had scores on them. And therefore, in many circles, I'm, I'm seen as, you know, one of the great advocates of scores. And, you know, and I've, I've reviewed for Halliday and that's all scores. And as I say, Winefront's been scores from day one. Funnily enough... I'm not really a score guy in my own way. I would never pick up a wine for my own consumption and think, what score would I give it? Never in a million years. Mm-hmm. I don't think of scores for myself. And often I'll get asked, you know, what, you know, what did you give X? And I, I couldn't, as soon as I put the <laughs> score on it, I wouldn't, I, I would never know. Yep. I would never remember. They're not important to me, but I still see their usefulness. And as I say, I'm a hundred percent certain whether they say it explicitly or not that people want them. Mm-hmm. And so Winefront wouldn't be here if I hadn't put scores on wines at the start. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no no question about that. And so I've just always been really practical about that. People want them, they're going to get them. Yep. So I take I treat them seriously. It's not like we're just, you know. You're not flipping. We're not, yeah. We're just handing them <laughs> out. Arbitrarily, <laughs> oh, this score's fine, whatever. But, yeah. Read, read, read everything else. Don't worry about the score. <laughs> and I think, you know, I, I, because I'm, I'm – often late in real life. I was often late with these newsletters. Mm. I can remember somebody emailing me and saying, um, look, your problem is you're too much of a, of a perfectionist with the stories. Just send me the scores. I don't care. <laughs> and I think that in some oh, ways... That's, that's, that's I know, I know it's depressing. heartbreaking. <laughs> I know. And I think that, you know... the. Because of that sort of feedback, you know, Winefront has become much more of a review and score entity yep. than what it was. Yep. Um, and I guess, you know, a bit like what I was saying before, when I got around the seven or eight year mark, you know, you've got to a certain level. Technology's changed a bit. I'm a bit tired. Now, I did get to a point where I went, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know that it wasn't wine. I'm not, just not sure that I want this, you know, carrying this burden of I must get the next newsletter out every month. And, you know, we're human beings. Like you go, you have your good eras and your bad eras. And I just got to the point where I was, you know, waking up every day going, if, well, put it this way, if people hadn't paid an annual subscription, I would have closed. Okay. But I was like, I, can't, I wasn't prepared to just dud people. So I had two choices. I, I was either going to pay people back their subscription, what they were owed, or I was going to keep going. Okay. <laughs> and so I kept going. Very and then the definition of limbo state. Yeah. And so, that, you know, obviously that was a really difficult period. And then, you know, around that time or just after that time when I started to go, no, actually, I, I do like this. I do want to do this. Um, Gary Walsh had started his own site, which was free. He was getting good numbers, but not making any any money out of it. And I just went. Sounds familiar. <laughs> and I said, you know, come over. We'll we'll share the subscriptions, and it's not a monkey on either of us. Back if you want to, if 
you want a week off, you have a week off. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and and you could effectively double, you know, your ability to generate content. Yeah, that's right. And brought his his readership. He's he's you know, you know, and then obviously I'm not quite sure how long he's been there, but you know, Mike Benny for I don't know maybe it's four or five years now. I'm, I'm not sure, but that was again you know Gary Gary emailed me one day and said this Mike guy's good. <laughs> we should bring him in. And in all honesty, I'd hardly heard of him. Mm. And Gary went, he's good. That was good enough for me. And, you know, he, as I say, he was thinking of doing his own newsletter or own, own website or whatever. And it's just so, it's it's heartbreaking trying to build up. You know, I, I'd seen my journey of how hard it was to get real numbers. We can give him real numbers from day one. Yeah. And we'll work out a model to make it worth his while. Yeah. And in the same way, it, it's given you all the opportunity to, you know, like knowing that, look, if I take a week off to do something or if I take a couple of months off to do something, there's still going to be someone generating content, put, con, con, content, you know, <laughs> uploading reviews, that kind of thing. And, and that's given you the opportunity to, you know, write for, for other publications and I think more importantly for, you know, writing books. Um, yeah, you know, and and the one obviously that uh, I've connected with um, this year was you know you very generously sent me a copy of the Wine Hunter, and I'm really interested to know what was the journey writing about Maurice O'Shea. Yeah, it's a funny one, you know. It's um, as I say, I'd been for this long period where I was trying to be a novelist, and and I those those ambitions are not completely lost. But um, and I I I went through a long period where I went, you know, in the next six months I'm publishing this really good novel. Like I, I that that next six month never came. But mm. <laughs> and I finally got to a point in like, I don't even know when it was, maybe 2005, where it just crossed my mind. I went, maybe that's not going to happen. Mm. Like I, all my adult life, or some, from 15 onwards, I just assumed this novel was. I was on the cusp of this really good novel. And I, so for the first time in whatever, 20 years or something, I went, what, what if it doesn't happen? And I got really despondent. And it, as life is, um, McWilliams came to me and said, we need a story on uh, Maurice O'Shea. Mm-hmm. We've seen some of the stuff you've done. We think you're the one to do it. Yeah. And so it wasn't actually my idea, but for someone to kind of give me a story that I could write creatively and give me a deadline <laughs> and, and pay me to allocate some proper time, which is the, is, is the big That's issue, big, yeah. Yeah. you know. And so I, was able, I couldn't actually do it now in a way, but I was able to say, look, for the next three months I'm not doing anything. I'm doing O'Shea. And it was really only that sort of time period that I had, mm-hmm. but – to get up every day for three months and not do anything else was, you know, a sort of, I mean, that's how the book happened and that's that's the sort of luxury that it's really hard to get that because if I'm going to write well, I need that. It, there's nothing else happening mm-hmm. <laughs> and every day there's nothing else happening and so, you know, that's that that's why that book's a bit of an island in my life. <laughs> we talked about, I think, at the beginning and the end of the book about, you know, how incredible it was to just be 100% immersed in the story and trying to sort of think about 
what it would have been like for O'Shea, you know, at this time and, and, you know, the challenges he would have met. Did you spend a lot of time up in the Hunter Valley? Did you, did you visit yeah, Mount Pleasant? I did and I tried to spend as much time as possible just sitting there, just mm. out in, in the landscape. Soaking it up. Yeah, yeah. And did a, a fair amount of the riding actually, just sitting up on the hill or sitting, you know, in in, in situ, just getting the feel for the place. Mm-hmm. That's it. I mean, as I say in the book, there's – I was initially kind of – you know, the idea was that I'd write a 15,000-word piece on him, you know, a long essay. Yeah. And then I met his daughter. And that was that was just the most, you know, I talk about emotion. That was just we just sat there and cried mm. all day because mm. it was just she just poured it out and I soaked it up. Yeah. And I just walked away from that and went, oh, no, we've got a book on our hands. Here. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the whole project from that day onwards, which was kind of the turning point of my life in many ways, the whole project, the whole thing is completely different. Everything is different after that moment. That was your sort of visceral reaction and that, and that was still kind of inspiration to really expand on that and, and, and really do justice to, you know, the contribution he made to the Australian wine industry. People had said to me, somebody needs to write a book on O'Shea, somebody needs to book, uh, write a book on Colin Priest mm-hmm. and you should do them. Mm-hmm. Now, and there is an argument someone should do a book on Max Schubert, though one has been done, but, um, you know, that would be a great trilogy. But um, I haven't got to Colin Priest. Okay. <laughs> but I haven't found a, an emotional way into Colin Priest, but with, with Morris I did. Yeah. The great attraction with Colin is that other than, you know, real real wine nerds, no one's really heard of him. Well, I think to a certain extent, like when I started working in wine, you know, it was to the Liquorland store and I remember there was a brand, Priest. There was. Priest Merlot was. was a big seller. Yeah. And that... But people wouldn't necessarily know that. Yeah, know, is there that is brand actually, still around? Or I it? don't know. I, I haven't, haven't seen, seen it for, it for a, long a long time. time. No, yeah, yeah. but it's, there, there's no real connection with the fact that that was a person, and not only was it a person, but he made some of the most beautiful wines that have ever been made. Yeah, in 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 Victorian terms, anyway. It's funny when you think about like a lot of brands, people think of them as brands, but they they actually were people. Yeah, and then the next evolution was for them to become brands, and now it's sort of Australian wine seems to be heading back towards more of that like connection with the winemaker. I guess people are releasing, you know, the I guess maybe in not necessarily in the big brand retail sort of environment, but certainly you know in, in what in the happening areas of uh, of wine consumption. Yeah, people are talking, you know. The rock star winemaker is becoming is coming back, <laughs> which is a good and a bad thing. But certainly, if, <laughs> if, if you're um, if you're into certain, well, if you like what a what a winemaker does, then they will they will take it into yeah. everything they do. Absolutely. So, um, and until recently, you were also contributing to Australian Wine Companion. Was that a, an interesting experience working with uh, with James? challenging <laughs> yeah look it was uh, I, it was something i when i when the opportunity was presented to me i had to do mm-hmm. and i had no desire to do for much longer than i did sure. <laughs> I, look i did it for two and a half editions it i feel like i did a good job I, who knows you don't get any feedback it's another, but, one, another one of those <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I certainly, you know, it's not, that's not an emotional gig. That is just work. Mm. But I feel like I gave it everything I could. It consumes your life for four months of the year, which, and you take another couple of months to get over it. So it feels like it's six months. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, logistically, physically, mentally, you know, how am I going to describe this Shiraz different to the other 500 <laughs> in a short period of time, which is yeah. which is one of the challenges of, of the wine writer's life. But when there's a bit of, you know, space between them, it's much easier. When you're doing 50 of them a day, every day for months, then that yeah. gets challenging. I was going to say, I can't imagine the people <laughs> pouring through the wine campaign going, hey, he made the same note about this Shiraz back on page 20. <laughs> <laughs> well, funnily enough, somebody did point one out to me no, recently. Really? said, yes, you know, the, the, the train spotters are amongst us. Somebody oh, said, gracious. you've made the same metaphor into wines i said no really of, of how many wines in that guide yeah. goodness sake <laughs> i suppose if you if you've got a digital edition you could just you know go keyword search <laughs> true you can see how many true. times you use word you use the word very <laughs> quite uh, so that that must have been a bit challenging to uh, to to wade through the the mountain of samples that you would have had to, I guess. But the difference with with that gig is that it's such a concentrated period. And whilst it is three months or so, it three or four months, it it comes as a deluge that, you know, I felt like I I lost lost my sense of naivety of how wine writing can work. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'd gone from lots of samples every day, every week, for, you know, more than ten years. Uh, and then you take on that gig and suddenly you start getting phenomenal loads of wine each day. Mm, pallet a week time. <laughs> I don't know, a pallet a day. Oh, my God. Like just, you know, the doorbell just constantly goes with couriers. It's just, it's a, it's a freakish experience. Yeah. And uh, any sort of other interesting projects you got coming up you might want to talk about? Oh, look, not really. I, not in the wine sense, you know. I one of the reasons I I resigned from the Halliday gig and from the Halliday magazine both times under the hope that if I free space, I will write more long form pieces whether they're fiction or non-fiction and so you know for the first time in well since wine hunter in a way i am you know spending days where i'm not just tasting mm-hmm. and i mean i'm trying to allocate parts of the week where i don't taste and i i actually write yeah <laughs> you can you, you can write thousands of words every day and they're, but they're all just tasting notes and and Whilst you, you're fulfilling your function, it's it's not satisfying. Yeah, you know you don't look back and go, "Gee, that was a fantastic note." <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you do, but but not well, yeah, not know, not I in general, you, you don't. Is, not <laughs> whereas you look back and go, "Gee, that was a really good piece." You know, I'm really I'm you know maybe I would have done X or Y different, but I am proud of that, and so. Yeah, I I wouldn't like to say specifically what I'm working on, but hopefully there are some things coming that i'm proud of but in the same way that you know you always want to have an emotional connection with something i think it is hard for people to have an emotional connection to a tasting note unless you know you you come up with this amazing sort of turn of phrase yeah and i think that it's probably pretty indicative that people will give you more feedback and tell you something tell you a reason why they've connected with an article because you're actually saying something more than 
here's how the wine is structured and, you know, this is what it reminds me of kind of thing. So I think that that there is something a little bit more at least creatively rewarding in writing something that is more than just a note. Oh, yeah, absolutely. From a commercial point of view, you know, you know, there's always been that thing with wine style that people talk dry, drink sweet. Mm-hmm. And with the, the equivalent in wine publishing is people talk stories by scores. And so yeah. um, everybody says they don't want scores, they don't want reviews, they want stories, but people don't buy them. Mm. And so the stories create the wine lover, but the scores, the scores, you know, encourage them to buy wine, I guess. Yeah. And if you looked at numbers of, I mean, you know, funnily, you know, exceptions to the rule are things like adventures on the wine route. But, you know, I know what, what you think of the actual book. But if you looked at, you know, the year that Halliday produced Wine Companion, and he did a book called, I think, Wine Odyssey, which mm-hmm. was like a, a diary of his year. Right. Which in concept at least is a much more interesting thing. You know, he says that's one of the few books that was almost pulped the day it came out. Like it just went absolutely nowhere, yeah. whereas the book is goes to reprint to reprint. I've, see, that, that's, that, that book sounds awesome. Like just something like learning about the process. That goes into something like the Wine Companion is fascinating. Yeah, look, you know, it's not unkind to say that. I'm not sure that the execution was quite what it could have been with that book, but in concept, it was was fantastic. Mm. Campbell, it has been really fascinating uh, finding out more about your your journey and your experiences. And and look, I look forward to uh, reading, hopefully, you know, lots more (laughs) books. Um, would you like to share with uh, the audience, uh, I'm sure many of them already know it, but the website address for the Winefront and, and your social media accounts, if you'd like to share them? Yeah, look, the website is winefront.com.au and, uh, yeah, look, I'm, I'm into social media under my own name, but go to the website. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you very much and uh, looking forward to sharing a wine with you sometime soon. Thanks for your time. And as always, thank you very much, dear listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and I would really love for you to follow me on social media. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Intrepid Wino, and on Twitter, the podcast is at The Vincast. Uh, head to facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino, hit that like button to follow my Facebook page and check out some of the posts and links that I put there. Uh, and I'd love for you to follow me on YouTube, head to the Intrepid Wino YouTube channel, uh, see some of my Let's Taste videos, my Intrepid winemaking experiences, and also uh, my recent series on the Alternative Varieties Wine Show. Uh, you can follow the podcast and download episodes via a number of different podcast sharing apps and programs, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Podbean. Uh, subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available, uh, and it's also a fantastic way to provide feedback to myself and also to uh, former and future guests of the podcast by leaving a five-star rating and a review. Uh, of course, all of that information, as always, is available at intrepidwino.com. You can find ways of getting in contact with me there. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, hit me up on email, thevincast at gmail.com. I've um, got some really exciting guests coming up soon. Uh, but until next time, bye. <laughs>